evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Witty Whiskey Cast. This, of course, is Mark Rossetti Jr. As always, here with the man with the plan, DJ Gagnon. hey And we are going to talk about something that is very near and dear to my heart. Something that brought great joy. Two things, in fact, that brought great joy to me when I was a little boy, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. We are going to talk about console wars again, but we're going to talk about probably... The single most uh, under-discussed era of console wars. Uh, we're going to talk about the Sega Saturn and the Nintendo 64. Yeah, the, the last real Nintendo versus Sega generation. Yes, technically, and we're going to get into why that was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and argue. I, I'm going to discuss the Saturn uh, in case you weren't with us last week, uh, but I'm not going to sit here and argue that the Saturn won uh, that console war because, of course, it clearly didn't. <laughs> um, but uh, it really was a case of friendly fire. I mean, Saturn's or Sega sabotaged Sega sabotage. It's easy for me to say, uh, and I haven't even started drinking yet, folks. Uh, Sega sabotaged themselves with this, and uh, we'll get into the who's and the what'sies uh, later on. But uh, DJ, what what have you been doing uh, up there? You know, is it like it is down here? Does it snow every seven hours or so? It seems like it does, and then it seems like it might be rain or it might just all be melt. I don't have no fucking clue. I don't leave the house. Time has no meaning. I work from home, uh, so I don't, I don't. The weather's fine inside. So I guess well, I should good. bloody well hope so. Uh, no, uh, Holly and I got a little work done on our roof last week, and uh, it they they actually found the issue, so um, avoided any potential disastrous roof leaks this time around. Just a small spot I got to paint over. Um, so the weather's fine now inside. Uh, but other than that, uh, we we are recording this. Uh, the day after Valentine's Day, so uh, we are happy Valentine's Day, buddy. Kisses and hugs, buddy. Kisses and hugs. Kisses and hugs. Uh, we, my wife and I, I, I haven't haven't had the chance to talk about this in the podcast. This is our first Valentine's Day. Uh, my wife and I have a tradition that we do every year, and uh, it's kind of a silly tradition. But back when we first started dating, uh, I had just started at. Uh, working in IT and I hadn't really quite figured out like how to live on my own for very long yet and Holly was still in college so we were you know I I definitely wouldn't say we were poor but you know we didn't we are definitely not as uh, we're definitely much more comfortable now than we were uh, you know 10 years ago and so we uh, I, I think I, I cooked dinner that night and it was probably something super basic like stir fry or something like that. And uh, we had gone to, I think, like Hannaford or something a couple of days before. And uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a local grocery chain up here in New England. And the uh, they used to have like movie rentals and then anything that didn't get rented... Uh, they would kind of just pop into like a $2 bin. And sitting on top of this $2 bin was a DVD for uh, a movie called Valentine's Day. And it's it's like an ensemble cast, and it's like a rom-com version of the movie Crash, if you've ever seen it. Oh, um, my. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like... Wait, it, hang on. 
Wait, back back up. So instead of horrible <laughs> things happening to people and then having you know finding out how their lives are connected, it's just a bunch of romantic pairings and relationship things all happening on a Valentine's Day. And it's a corny movie, but we watch it every year on Valentine's Day. It's a huge ensemble cast, like Julia Roberts, Bradley Cooper, uh, Taylor Swift is in it alongside Taylor Lautner because it was right around the time that the Twilight movies were coming out. Um, Anne Hathaway, Topher Grace, uh, the the two sexy dudes from Grey's Anatomy, I'm told. Uh, I don't watch Grey's Anatomy, so I don't know. Um, so it's this... It's just a rom-com. It's a silly, you know, kind of cute movie. It's got some really funny parts. But the funniest part that we we always really look forward to every year is that the previews before the movie starts on the DVD are buck wild. Like, it's a huge ensemble cast, right? Huge name actors and actresses. Big budget, kind of silly rom-com. But there's previews for... Uh, Sex and the City 2, which I know nothing about Sex and the City, so it's really weird to see Sex and the City 2 every year. Uh, and then weirdly, Dr. Zhivago? <laughs> there's a like a there's like a seven-minute preview, like a very long preview for Dr. Zhivago. I had never heard of Dr. Zhivago. I have yet to see Dr. Zhivago. But it's this incredibly dramatic, like World War One movie, and it's it. The preview comes after the preview for Sex and the City two, and before this giant ensemble rom com. This reminds me when I was in college, um, you know, being the only one. Uh, well, me and Lou really were the. Our friend Lou was. We were the only two people at Endicott that didn't have trust funds. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of the uh, wealthier, more aristocratic types uh, weren't exposed to some of the, you know, knockdown, drag out, blue collar culture that we were. Yeah. And uh, one of their favorite hobbies uh, up there, which, of course, you know, me being the terrible influence that I am, I encouraged uh, regularly, uh, was they were very fond of the parody uh Adult videos, shall you say? You know the Star Treks, the Harry Potters, the uh, different video game parodies, and you would get previews before that, and it would always be this insane mashup. You know, when you talk about Sex in the City and Doctor Shivago, you know, it's like, oh, you rented this Star Trek movie. Well, what about this Simpsons parody? <laughs> hmm? Oh God! Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. That's the only proper reaction to that. Yeah. So, I mean, we look forward to watching this movie together every year. I, I can't recommend watching it unless you are a fan of rom-coms, which I am. Uh, so it, it's very silly. Um, but, you know, I, I've gotten into the habit of always making Holly a nice meal for Valentine's Day because sometimes she has to work, so it's nice for her to come home to that. And this year, uh, I was making her favorite dessert, which requires caramel of some form. And I decided it would be a genius level idea to, in the midst of making two other dishes, to make caramel from scratch. Oh, and, that's a rookie mistake. Uh, it, it worked. I made caramel and I did not burn it. 
But would I, you do it again, though? I would. Um, but I think I am going to get some, like, like a small specialized pot just for making candy because I did have to spend, like, 40 minutes scraping caramel out of my normal pan. Um, but I did... Uh, I mean, I it was supposed to be a little bit softer. Like, I, if I had taken it off, like, 10 seconds sooner, it would have been perfect. Um, but that's the thing with making candy. Like, it, it's just done. Like, as soon as you hit uh, the... Like, if you have already hit the temperature on your candy thermometer, you're already... You're late. Um, so, uh, I, I went straight from, like, soft crack into hard crack... And I had the presence of mind to use the half of the batch I needed for the dessert and then poured it out over parchment paper. And uh, I got to an hour and a half later, take the pan and drop it on the ground and watch it shatter. So I've now got uh, like the, the shards of caramel candy that I can just have this week. It's delightful. Man, your Valentine's Day was like much more exciting than mine. <laughs> How was yours, buddy? You know, Annie and I have been together at this point something like 12 years, 12 and a half years, something like that. So, you know, normally it's just a quiet meal at home. I'll, you know, I'll cook. A lot of times I'll make her a, a lobster. I'll buy a live lobster and, you know, boil it to death uh, because she enjoys it and I think it's grotesque. Yeah. Or in uh, pre-COVID times, uh, we would go out somewhere and, you know, we'd get a nice meal. But this year she's like... You cook most of the time anyway. Why don't we just order out? We'll get DoorDash or something, and, you know, we'll just relax and watch TV and play a board game. And I love her to death, but, you know, as we talked about on our board games episode, her idea of board games and my idea of board games are a bit different. Uh, (laughs) But nevertheless, you know, I suggested we play the Portal board game, and she wanted to play Life. So we we played Life, Uh, which is fine. And, you know, we ordered uh, barbecue from a place about 40, 45 minutes or so away, just uh, off of Pocono Raceway, if any of you are familiar where that is. Uh, it's not too far uh, past. It's actually a little bit past that from where we are. So, well, 20, 25 minutes each way, 45 minutes total. Nice. And, uh, and then she uttered the five sexiest words any woman could ever utter to a man. She said to me, you can watch the race. <laughs> uh, because, of course, some genius decided to schedule the Daytona 500 for Valentine's Day. And yes, I know it's usually the second week in February, but you know, this, they got a program a little bit of flexibility into that there. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she was cool with it and ended up getting rain delayed and didn't even start until about 10 o'clock anyway. So uh, we were able to have a nice, quiet day at home and. Watch the demolition derby. I mean, uh, race. <laughs> I, I do find you know as, as terrible as restrictor plate racing is, which is what they have at Daytona and Talladega, where the cars just run in a big pack, and then one person makes a mistake, and seventeen cars are destroyed in one go of it. I do actually enjoy it because you get such interesting team tactics. I mean, teammates push each other physically. You know, one car will hit into the back of the other and push it forward. Uh, teammates draft together. They pit together manufacturers, you know, all the Ford cars pit on one lap, all the Chevy cars pit on another lap. It's, it's pretty interesting, and you don't really get sort of that teamwork in a lot of other races. I mean, you know, racing is a team sport. Um, you know, on the high end, you look at the Mercedes Formula One team, they have about 1,500 people that build two cars a year to go racing. 
you know, all the way down to just, you know, guy and a few of his friends in a garage building a short track car. It is, it is <laughs> a team, uh, team sport, so you don't get to see that often. So I enjoyed it. And, you know, we, we played life. I won. Not that, not that it was a competition or anything, but, you know, I won. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we had a nice meal and we just hung out. So that, that was nice. And now we're, we're bracing for the fourth Tuesday in a row of Monday night into Tuesday uh, snow and ice. So uh, about 10 o'clock, it's supposed to just start bucketing ice here. We're supposed to get about a quarter of an inch, which for ice, that's quite a bit. It is. Um, so I'm not looking forward to that. It's about 27 degrees right now. It's terribly cold. So, yeah, we, we, we have that. Uh, but, you know, nothing warms us up like whiskey. What, what are you drinking this week? Well, uh, I meant to drink something clever, but due to a clerical error, I am reviewing straight up Jack Daniels tonight. <laughs> Uh, so now, can, can I ask? I didn't, you know, I, I did know this going in. DJ texted me that pretty much word for word earlier today, and I, I didn't ask him then. But can I ask you on the air what was said clerical error? So I I've been trying to find like a good way to review Jack and Jim and Johnny because I want to hit all the J names this year, and I've reviewed Jameson twice. I feel like I can't keep reviewing Jameson. Uh, so I went, I was looking at the long shelf of Jack Daniels and, you know, you've reviewed Gentleman Jack. I could do Jack Reserve if I wanted. And I was kind of looking at the normal Jack bottles and way at the end was this, it said limited release and it was like a green label and it said sour mash on it. I was like, oh, maybe that's a cool, (laughs) like that's a cool different kind of Jack, right? Maybe, maybe I can bring that to the table and review it for our fans come to find out it's just jack daniels with a cool different label which well if if i can interrupt here for a second Mm -hmm. it's technically not just jack daniels and i i know this only because i was a man who uh, in my younger days when money was a little bit more tight drank an insane amount of green labeled Jack Daniels. Um, You used to be able to buy it here regularly uh, at the liquor stores in Pennsylvania. It was one of the few things you could get. It was about $5 a bottle cheaper. And it was explained to me that that was the seconds uh, of old number seven. And so it wasn't quite as good, which is why they didn't uh, charge as much for it. But I will say uh, they had told me, you know, uh, we sell a lot of this to bars because they use it for mixers. They use it for Jack and Coke. Uh, I was very big on orange juice and Jack Daniels at a time. That was when I was uh, racing pretty regularly. That was the team drink. Uh, and they said, you know, this is really good for mixers. They said, you, sh- you shouldn't drink it straight. But, you know, if you want something with Jack in it, this is what you go to. And, uh, yeah, it works. I mean, uh, God, I drank my share, your share. Everybody share that stuff. <laughs> And so it's not bad. And when you sent me the picture, I kind of smiled because it just it took me back about 10 years. And I was like, oh, yeah, put a little OJ with it. You like it. Yeah. Yeah. So I I uh, I I tried looking this up and like I spent 25 minutes researching this. I'm pretty (laughs) damn good at the Internet these days, folks. And Jack does not 
advertise this. Nope. It is not on their website. <laughs> nope. It's, uh, if you look it up on any whiskey review place, they're all like, yeah, it's Jack Daniels. Like, nobody tells you what Mark just told you. So take that as a good piece of information, because I didn't know walking into this episode that it was any different. I so, mean, after two glasses, you can't taste it. I mean, maybe somebody with an insanely heightened palate can. Um, I mean, if you drink them straight, you're completely sober. But you drink them back to back. There is a slight difference. We did it once. But no, for all intents and purposes, it's Jack Daniels. Yeah. It just has a cool green label on it. Yeah, so rather than just come to you with plain old Jack Daniels or green label Jack Daniels, um, I decided to do some research. I did a little bit of prep for this episode. And uh, I know that Jack is known for its charcoal filtering. And it kind of picks up that classic Jack taste with the, uh, as they say, 10 feet of, of sugar, maple, charcoal, and uh, it's the, it's their big thing, right? They've got a black label on most of their bottles, you know, indicates the charcoal. It's a dark, punch-you-in-the-face kind of charcoal taste. And I was personally curious, because again, my, my whiskey palette is relatively new, uh, especially compared to Mark's. And I, so I did a sample of just the Jack Green label by itself. And, you know, not even a finger, just, you know, a few sips just to, you know, let it play in the palate. And it is, it's not as complex as some of the whiskeys that I tend to review. It doesn't really have those notes of vanilla and cinnamon and sugar and caramel and all the things that I like about whiskey. Um, It's Jack. It's, it's charcoal it's it's a it's a bit smoky it's fairly smooth for for what it is um and then i was like hmm, i the only other whiskey that i generally drink that's kind of got that black char thing uh is jameson black barrel so i after drinking the jack i poured myself uh you know a few sips of black barrel and i compared them because i jameson black barrel is my go-to and I definitely prefer the 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 wood char, like the the barrel aged wood char taste over the charcoal filter taste of Jack. Not to say Jack is bad. Uh, I definitely, I mean, I've drank my fair share of Jack. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but I am personally, I will always go for the the bar- the barrel char uh, over the the charcoal filter. Uh, so I did make a cocktail because I didn't want to just come to the table with, with just Jack. Uh, and so I That'd did... That'd be a good cocktail, just Jack. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just a finger of Jack and a, <laughs> with an umbrella. Uh, I made one of the cocktails on Jack's website called Jack and... I think it's Jack and Black. Um, so it's uh, an ounce and a half of Jack three-quarter ounces of coffee liqueur uh, topped with cola in a, in a rocks glass with some ice. And uh, I do want to give a big shout-out to a friend of the show, Ryan George, who uh, I, the only coffee liqueur I had was uh, her family's coffee liqueur that she uh, makes and hands out at Christmas every year. So uh, shout-out, Ryan. Uh, definitely use your coffee liqueur here. It was amazing, uh, as always. And uh, it's a pretty good cocktail. Uh, it says garnish with a cherry. I didn't have any cherries, so I just used cherry Coke instead. It's it's great. Uh, so oh, it, if... Jesus Christ. 
So if you're if you're looking for a uh, you know we've now given you two Jack cocktails, uh, I Jack and orange juice and a Jack and in black. I will review Jack and OJ um, uh, one day, and we'll get into the story of that. But I I do want to clarify just for the record here. Ryan gave you that bottle of coffee liqueur as a gift. You're not shaking down our fans no. for, for liquor here for your concoction. No, 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 no. 100% no. No, this was purely a gift that I got for Christmas uh, a couple years ago. Uh, it's it, I love their family's liqueur. Uh, they did not specifically give it to us for the podcast. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. It just happened to be that I was out of Kahlua at the time and, and used... Uh, uh, a home brew of coffee liqueur that was fantastic. I'm just headcanoning you all masked up in a hoodie, you know, knocking on poor Ryan's door, you know, can I borrow a cup of liqueur? This week's episode <laughs> won't go out otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Shaking I, I down the poor young lady. I definitely Oliver twisted it up. But I do have another topic to talk about for whiskey, but before I get to it, what are you drinking? Well... Uh, I am drinking uh, another uh, manly name in the world of bourbon. I'm drinking Elijah Craig. Yeah, you are. <laughs> and before we get into the review, could I just say how pissed off I am? I got carded when I bought this. Who is <laughs> carding you? There was this lady who was not that old behind the counter. And, you know, I rail here about Pennsylvania's. Uh, state-run liquor monopoly, and it's awful, and, you know, it's just terrible. But because of that, literally in Pennsylvania, to work at a liquor store, it's a civil service job. You have to take the civil service exam. That's your application. Uh, So like all government jobs, you know, the people, they don't want to be there. Which, you know, hey, I don't blame them. I don't want to be at work most days either, and I like my job. Uh, But it is what it is. Uh, So I get there, and, you know, I have a bottle of Elijah Craig, and I go to ring it up, and she says to me, oh, I need to see your ID. <laughs> and I must have had a look on my face. And she said, well, you're wearing a mask. Which, okay, that's fair. I'll give her that. But number one, uh, the years have not been kind to me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. I'll, be, I'll be the first to admit that. Uh, I'm 34 and a half going on about 48. And number two, I've started straightening my beard recently, so it is currently at 13 and a half inches. It is well below any mask. I can wear a neck gaiter, and I still have a good four to five inches of beard poking out. And he will defend that beard to the end of his days, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to start braiding it again. Hell with all you people. I don't care. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when you have no, no sense of shame, you open up a whole new world of possibilities. So, okay, I give her my ID, and, you know, she sees that it's a 1, 9, and then an 8 afterwards, and her eyes kind of be like, oh, yeah, sorry. And, you know, she rings it up and then puts it in a bag and proceeds to, like, bounce it off the counter after me. And I'm like, if you break this, I swear to God. But nevertheless, (laughs) my my ass is still a little chapped about that. Uh, But we have Elijah Craig, a small batch. Now, interestingly enough... This was, for a while, Elijah Craig 12-year. And it was so good, and people wanted so much of it, they could not age it in barrels for 12 years anymore to keep up with the demand. Wow. So a few years ago, they just said, hey, it's not 12 years old anymore, but it's still the same recipe. And I'll be the well, that guy. I actually think it's a little bit better now that they don't age it as long, and I'll tell you why. 
it's not as smooth. And before you sit there and go, what? That doesn't make any sense. And she, you know, smooth is better. And blah, blah, blah. Usually, yes. But if you've listened to the last few episodes, I've really not been enjoying my whiskeys these past few weeks. And, you know, when you're at the liquor store and you're just going through aisle after aisle and looking at it, I almost dipped into the well. I almost went to Four Roses this week just because it was something I knew. Uh, and, you know, you see the Elijah Craig and you're like, OK. And since it's not smooth now, it just it hits you. It's a proper bourbon. Uh, it's 94 proof. It has good oaky wood tones. It doesn't even really have smoke. It just tastes like wood. It's like you're chewing on a piece of bark. I love it. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Elijah Craig was a hellfire Baptist preacher in revolutionary America, my era. Oh, I almost snorted more, Jack. That's hilarious. He was. And in 1792, which is why 1792 is on the bottle, he created a process for, quote, unquote, the true Kentucky bourbon. So all those other bourbons you would drink, those are false. God <laughs> says no. This is the only true Kentucky bourbon. It's ridiculous. Uh <laughs> You know, and it starts off light, just a little hint of vanilla, but it's not really sweet. It's kind of like vanilla extract, and then you get to the wood, and then you get to that good whiskey burn. And it's one of those that it, the, it's almost like a, a hot pepper. The longer you keep it on your tongue, the stronger it gets. Ooh, that, don't, don't use that as a drop. That sounded really dirty. But you all know <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's really good, even though it's still uh, non-age uh, stated NAS, as they say in the lingo. You can still get different aged versions of Elijah Craig, which are quite a bit more money. Interestingly enough, uh, Elijah Craig is usually a quote-unquote budget bourbon. Uh, despite all this, it's usually somewhere in the $25 to $30 range. Lately anymore, in Pennsylvania, like everything else, it's through the roof because we have the whiskey taxes and everything. It's usually about $40 a bottle, which in of itself isn't bad, but it's quite a bit more than any other place is paying. Uh, but it was, you know, 10% uh, off uh, today or 20% off today, whatever the hell it was. So I picked it up, which was good. Uh, overall, I recommend it, especially if you want, quote-unquote, your grandfather's whiskey, you know, the burn means it's working, like the old Listerine commercials. <laughs> Get Elijah Craig. It's, it's really good. Uh, so... Do your whiskey thing, and then I have another whiskey thing. But go ahead. Oh, it's a whiskey. It's a whiskey episode. We're, We're not whiskey adjacent this week. No, no, we are, we are whiskey front and center. So, uh, and I think this might be a topic. Maybe we should talk about at some point in terms of like whiskey etiquette. And I mean, we could do a whole episode oh, about God, like yeah. ways and rules. Yeah. Um, but I did find while researching Jack that, like most alcohols and cocktails, there was an apocryphal story with Jack uh, on how Frank Sinatra used to drink Jack and what his, like, standard Jack drink was. And they call it, uh, I think they call it, like, Frank's Way or something like that uh, on the Jack website. And they, they say it's a 3 two, one recipe, three parts ice, uh, two parts of Jack and one part water or a splash of water, depending on how you're, you're looking at it. And that brought up an interesting point where I've experimented with this a little bit. You know, I've experimented with mellowing whiskey with ice. I've experimented with, you know, throwing some drops and some intense whiskey. And I can't say I've really done enough research here to experience whiskey 
you know, you hear people talk about, oh, well, this whiskey, a little bit of water will open it up. I haven't quite gotten to that point in my whiskey palette yet. But uh, is that something that you ever do, Mark? Do you ever add a little bit of water to your whiskey? Uh, with scotch on occasion. Uh, I'll, I'll put just a spoonful in, uh, especially if I'm drinking it neat. Nine times out of ten, I am a whiskey stone guy, or regardless of what I drink. Or I have uh, a set that I got for our wedding years and years ago. I have a set of whiskey pucks, just oh. these big metal, um, they're big flashy chrome things. They look like they came out of the 1950s. And you put them in the freezer, and they're large enough that you only need one. Nice. Uh, you can have some fun with it, with ice in particular. My father-in-law bought me what are supposedly whiskey. It's a whiskey ice cube tray, and they're huge. Like, one of these cubes is equivalent of, like, five of a regular ice cube tray. Oh, yeah. Uh, but for the most part, I only use that for uh, cocktails, either to frost a glass or in my shaker. You know, I, I used quite a bit of ice last week when I made the Mandarin Madness. Uh, but nine times out of ten, I drink it straight. Now, I'm not going to sit here and argue, you know, my thing is you should drink whiskey. <laughs> Coming as someone who, you know, years and years and years and years ago drank beer and, you know, then started drinking whiskey and hasn't gone back, I want to get as many people into the hobby as possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can get playfully gatekeepy here at the WW, my, myself in particular, uh, but I want to get you in the door. Once you're in the door, then we can start to talk about X, Y, and Z. Uh, but if you want to drink it with a little bit of ice, if you want to do this, you know, I mean, when Lou and I were living together, we used to get into arguments constantly. Because no matter what he's drinking, Lou likes a ton of ice. And, I mean, that's fine. You know, it, it is what it is. Uh, me, I, I want to sit there and just sip. I want to know, you know, it's, it's like when I build a, a car. I want to know where my money goes when I put my foot down. <laughs> I want to know where my money goes when I take a swig. That's fair. Uh, I mean, props to Lou, though. That man makes an amazing gin and tonic, so... Well, he makes... His cocktails are really, really good. Yeah, you yeah. can't argue I, with the results. I, I will always say yes to when Lou hands me a drink. Yeah, it's it's always a good time. All right, what's your whiskey story? Well, speaking of etiquette and speaking of getting playfully gatekeepy, I have uh, decided... Because about a year ago... Actually, it was exactly a year ago this month. I... Went down to my local brick-and-mortar cigar store, and I rented a locker for the year. And, of course, with the Rona raging out of control, I got to use it maybe four times over the course of the year. So I've gone down there a couple times in the last few weeks because uh, the rent is due for another year and this and that. And lo and behold, I had loaded it up because, of course, it's humidified. The store keeps everything going. I had loaded it up with uh, not just Crown Royal, but about, you know, 15 to 18 cigars, which have just been sitting there. And, of course, you know, I don't smoke in the mansion, and it's been like 18 degrees below zero, <laughs> so all these cigars are building up. No summer kitchen. Mm, no. So, you know, here we are. Uh, so I decided to attempt to infuse a few of my cigars. And I'm using the Elijah Craig for this. And basically, the entry-level way, the... the oh, go ahead. What? I'm, I'm what using are you doing? The, I'm infusing them. 
I'm going to flavor these cigars. And basically, the, the pull man's way, the entry-level way, is you get a Tupperware container that will fit said cigars and that will fit a double shot glass. You fill said double shot glass up with whatever you want to use, brandy, cognac, whiskey, bourbon, whatever. And you put the cigars in there with it, and you seal it up and let it sit for six to eight weeks. You put the cigars in the glass? No, 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 in the Tupperware container with the glass. Ah, okay. And you let it sit for six to eight weeks, and then you take it out, and you just sort of, you know, put it in your mouth dry and just take a drag or two off of it to see if it's infused enough, flavored enough for you. Uh, And if it's not, you put it back in, and if it is, you smoke it. So I did that this morning. I, I took some pictures, which I'll put up on the various social medias, and... Uh, well, after Easter, you know, Lent starts this week, Ash Wednesdays this week, for all of you uh, Christians, uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And this is actually kind of fun because this is the one, uh, you know, I, I talked about this in our terrible fandom, cigar people are assholes, myself included. Mm-hmm. And, you know, flavored cigars are the big, or I'm sorry, they're not flavored, they're infused. You know, we have to have our own terminology. Uh, 99% of them are terrible. I've had quite a few of them, and they're just they're just bad. You know, they're for when people go out and, you know, if you don't smoke a cigar but you're with your friends and you want to be part of the group, you know, you have a cigar. Uh, There's a few of them that are decent. Uh, Unsurprisingly enough, Maker's Mark used to make their own cigars, and they were really good. (laughs) They were were really expensive, but they were really good. And they stopped making them the same that they stopped making their damn cherries. Yes, exactly. They've they've, uh, undiversified. But, you know, there's coffee ones, and then there's all the acids that literally have perfume in them, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, So that's sort of a a taboo in, quote-unquote, proper cigar circles, whatever the hell that means, whatever the hell that's worth. Uh, But I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to try it. You know, I mean, Churchill dipped his cigars in brandy. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. Who am I to judge? (laughs) So, you know... Six to eight weeks, maybe I'll have a review of that. Nice. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So, okay, it's time now. Yeah, uh, so halfway through the episode, we'll finally get to our topic. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're going to be honest, this one's going to be pretty one-sided. Yeah, the N64 one. All right, well, thanks for coming, fans. Now, Steve, hi, you're not wrong, but you're only half right. <laughs> Allow me to explain here. Now, just before we went on air, we were arguing over what we should call the collection of consoles we're going to discuss. It's true, yeah. This shit's going to get a little little math here, but we are calling this our second console war, but we started with what is, what, the second or third or fourth we, generation, depending on how you count. Yeah, okay. So what we are going to talk about today is considered by the industry, quote-unquote, to be the fifth generation of consoles. DJ and I both consider it the fourth. Yeah. So, you know, just put this in the back of your head as we go forward. You know, your first generation was your original Nintendo Entertainment System or the Famicom, if you were from Japan, uh, your Atari 2600 your Intellivision, your ColecoVision, that era. Your second generation, uh, you also had the Sega Master System later on. That sort of crossed over between first and second generation. Yeah. Um, or no, wait, I screwed it up. You did. Hang on. 
I did screw it up. Yeah. So see, this is how confusing this is. Yeah. So um, the the first generation would have been OG Atari uh, era, right? Like Jaguar type stuff. No, no, no. Jaguar is much later. Jaguar okay. actually came out around the same time as the Saturn. I have one oh, of those wow. too. Of course you do. Um, but yeah, no. So it was OG Atari. It was the NES because the NES was out for a while. That came out in '85. That was yeah, out for a while. The NES spans a couple of generations. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you go into you know you have the SNES and the Genesis. You have uh, the Turbo Graphics 16 and the Neo Geo. Even though nobody had any of those. Yeah. Um, the Atari 7200 was in there somewhere, but nobody nobody did any of those. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And now, you know, then you come up the mid-90s. We're talking 95, 96, 97. Uh, the Attitude Era, if you like wrestling parlance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have either the fourth or the fifth, depending on, you know, what you want to talk about. Yeah. Generation of games. And now, do you want to go, do you want to take a guess? Because there's... According to the industry, there are five systems in the in this generation. Do you want to guess what they are? Well, sixty four, correct. PS which was one. the last one. Yeah, PS one, correct. Which was the second to the last one. Saturn, which was the middle one. Dreamcast, no. or is Dreamcast the Cube era? Dreamcast is technically in the middle, but it's grouped in with the Cube era. Okay. Um, I just gave you one. The Jaguar. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. The Jaguar. Yeah. I don't know what the fifth one is. The fifth one, which was actually the first one, is one that I do not own. It was the 3DO. Yeah. I've never heard of that. (laughs) To put that into perspective, the 3DO, just this isn't what we're going to talk about, but I just want to throw it out here. It launched on October 4th, 1993. Do you want to take a guess how much it was in 1993? Like $300? $700. Oh, oh my God. It's more so than, expensive. More than $1,400 today. I want Worth. you to think about that one. Yeah, it's a lot. So depending on where you go with video game history, right? Like... Uh, in the industry, there is an era pre-Atari where yes. it's like the single game consoles. You know, Pong had its own console. There was some early arcade stuff. We're not counting that. We're not. We're we're not going to go that far back. Uh, we also kind of skipped the NES era. We skipped a lot of the early Atari stuff, and we jumped straight to. Uh, Super Nintendo and Genesis, which... That's when it got hot, baby. Yeah, it's where it got hot. So depending on where you kind of consider the console wars, our first console war is third, fourth. Our second console war is fourth, fifth in the industry, depending on where you start counting. I like considering, like, the one-game consoles to be, like, the zero-width era. Right, like I, I like starting to count when you can actually get multiple games for a console. Yeah, that generally helps. You know, it's not like the, uh, you know, the the early what was it the Magnavox or whatever it was where they just gave you screen inserts to put over the screen to make it seem like you were playing different games. Yeah, but if if you are curious about the zero width era as we're talking about it, there there are some really interesting con- control schemes. Uh, you know, most of us when we think of playing. Uh, early video games, we think of that really rigid joystick that was with the Atari, 
Um, but the original, uh, the original control screen for Pong was like a, a dial yep. side to side. Um, I actually have one of those. They're yeah. wild. Yeah, that, that shit's pretty cool. And uh, I, I enjoyed, I didn't actually know about that until the first time I ever watched the, that 70s show. So <laughs> Never thought we would have a That 70s Show reference on here, but here yeah, we are. That 70s show. So uh, we're starting, uh, I know N64 is pretty late in the game. Um, but you know, we're starting in what is fourth slash fifth with our second console war here. Uh, I'm taking Nintendo 64 because I like winning. Um, and Mark, uh, likes rooting for the underdog. Uh, so considering the Sega Saturn came out before the 64, you want to start? I can start. Um, uh, and yes, I do like rooting for the underdog, but I also feel... The Saturn, depending on what day of the week it is and depending on what mood I'm in, is either the single most underrated slash unappreciated slash underutilized console or the second most behind the GameCube. I flip-flop back and forth. Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to be rough when we hit the next console war because we both <laughs> love the, the GameCube dearly. Well, I, full disclosure before we start, I own both a Saturn and an N64. I love both, and I freely acknowledge that the N64 won at the time. Now, here's the thing, and before you, before you interject here, let me say that uh, in the long run, the N64 didn't win, but neither did the Saturn. The, the PS1 won. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we are, we are both rooting for underdogs here. Yes, uh, but at the time, I mean, living through it, being alive, I was like, oh, man, the N64, that was where it was at. You know, that kicked everybody's ass. And then just a few years later, we're all like, oh, wait, no, Sony was playing the long game. <laughs> Hang on. I see what was going on here. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's that. It, no matter what way you spin it, the Saturn didn't win. And that falls solely on Sega, which we will get into. So... Uh, s- we're going to go back a little bit. Uh, we had talked about this in our previous Console War episode. The Sega had the Genesis, and then they had the Sega CD, and then they had the uh, Sega 32X. And they were just putting all these add-ons onto the Genesis, and they were trying to expand its lifespan and trying to drag it out. They were really dragging their feet. They didn't want to build a new console. And at the time, they were naming all of their prototypes after planets. So you had the Sega Neptune, which was a... Uh, 32X standalone console, which there's prototypes of that you can look at. There was the Sega Mars, which was a Genesis and 32X all-in-one. You didn't have to plug anything in. It had two console slots. It was They prototyped that. They played that. They never released that. While they were wasting all their money on this, they came out with the Sega Saturn. And what was interesting is this is the point when it starts to pivot away from consoles or, yeah, from consoles, listen to me, from cartridges to discs. Mm -hmm. Discs had been played with earlier. You know, the $700 3DO that we talked about, that was a disc system. Then uh, The Neo Geo still used cartridges, but the TurboGrafx-16, I believe, was a disc system. Of course, nobody had that either. Uh, The Philips CDI, of course, was a CD system, and that did exist no matter what Nintendo tells you. Oh, my God, Uh, CDI games, woof. (laughs) Uh, So at this time, the Jaguar, which had come out earlier, that was cartridge-based. 
uh, and still had a keypad. The controller is huge. It looks like a phone. It has all all the same buttons as a phone. Uh, it, they later on added a CD add-on, much like the Sega CD, when they realized that that was going to be a thing. Uh, of course, the N64 was cartridges, which you'll talk about later. The PlayStation was discs. And the Saturn went with discs. And there's uh, two versions out there. There's a white one and a black one, which the only difference is the black one was for Western markets and the white one was in Japan. Uh, that was it. And it first released in Japan on November 22nd, 1994. And it was about seven months later in America, May 11th, 1995, when it dropped. And this is where the problem began. <laughs> Because originally, and I remember all of this, I was but a wee boy of like 11 at the time, 10 at the time, but I remember all this very vividly. It was announced that the Saturn was going to come out on Sega Saturn Day, which of course was a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sega was very big on this. The Dreamcast came out on 9999, September 9th, 1999. They were very big on that. But it was going to come out on Sega Saturn Day, which was another game in uh, September, which I have to find the, my notes here with the last September, September 2nd, 1995. However, the system was done. It had come out in Japan already seven months earlier. It was finished. They were manufacturing them. You know, it's not like it is today when Sony and Nintendo just make five systems and then say, oh, we sold out. Look at that. Now you can't get one. Uh, they actually made enough systems back then that for people that could buy them, they could buy them. Uh, I'm not bitter or anything. Anyway, uh, so Sony of Japan, or Sega of Japan, rather, told Sega of America, yeah, you're going to go with it. <laughs> and, and they said, wait, what, what? And they said, no, no, you're, you're going to go with it. Don't, don't worry about it. Just, just send it. So uh, May 11th, they announced, hey, remember Sega Saturn Day? Yeah, that was a lie. The Saturn is out now. But, but it's only at Toys R Us, Babbage's, EB, and Software, etc. Which I don't believe any of those four <laughs> brands exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, but you had big companies like Circuit City, which also doesn't exist anymore. Best Buy, Walmart, all these huge companies. They didn't get any. And what? they were pissed. Yeah, uh, that directly leads into an interesting thing with N64. Uh, it, it actually was a, uh, the, the reason why the N64 got delayed a few more months is because Nintendo saw what happened with Saturn and went, oh shit, Saturn just got in huge trouble for not like being able to meet retailer demand. Let's wait a few months to release the 64 and not have that problem. Yeah, and so you had that. You also had the fact that it released at $399 uh, in 1995, which is the equivalent of about 700 today. Yeah, it's To rough. put that into perspective. And so uh, while this was going on, while the chaos of the announcement was going on, uh, it was actually at E3 that year. E3 was in May that year. And Sony was going on after. And, you know, Sega of Japan thought they were just so smart. You know, oh, we trumped them. Our system is in stores right now. And people could go and buy it for $400. And the head of Sony at the time, who was Olaf Olsen, which is a great name, by the way. It's so good. Uh, but he just walked to the podium for Sega's keynote announcement. And Sega's keynote announcement was three 
characters. Do you know what it was? No. His entire keynote speech, they had booked an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it was. He walked up to the microphone and just said, two ninety nine. And walked away. <laughs> that was it. That was it. It was over. It was done. And, and with that one statement, they won you, the fucking console you could, war. You could hear the gunshot in the back of the Saturn's head. I mean, it was just, it was over. And I had a subscription to GamePro at the time, which I don't think exists anymore either. No. Um, and I remember reading about this, you know, a month or two later when it came out, and they were all just like, yeah, it's over. Don't even bother buying a Saturn. Like, why? Why would you? (laughs) So, uh, you know, you had that. Uh, It sold very well in Japan, as most Sega systems did, and uh, one of the reasons why I have a soft spot for the Saturn is I like old-school hot-rodding, you know, 50s and 60s-style hot-rodding, where the technology wasn't so good, So they used a lot. Like, if you look at old hot rods, they have, you know, multiple engines or they have multiple carburetors on an engine or some of them even have extra sets of wheels and different things because the technology wasn't so great. Just put a lot of it on. Yeah, it was like that that Banjo-Kazooie nuts and bolts game where you could just make your car out of whatever bullshit you found lying around. Yes, that was old school hot rodding. So, DJ, you're a tech uh, individual. You're a tech-savvy gentleman. Do you want to take a guess, without Googling it, how many processors in 1995 <laughs> the Sega Saturn had? Oh, man, I have no idea. It uh, had eight. Jesus. It, including two twin CPUs. Yeah, uh, I mean, clearly this thing was overpowered <laughs> for this generation. <laughs> well, here was the thing. It was, it was overpowered. Uh, it was running at 28.6 megahertz, which at the time was fantastic. Uh, you know, at the time, this is all laughable now. It had 32 uh, channels of sound at the time, which, I mean, as big of an N64 fan as I am, the, the sound on the N64 was always the worst thing. Uh, you know, it had a, uh, an SCU, and, and it was interesting at the time because now I don't know what this means. Uh, I was looking this up in the book I have, The History of Video Gaming, but you might know what this means. Both uh, CPUs ran on the same bus. I don't, I don't know what that means. But because of that, it was, number one, because you had eight processors, you had two CPUs, the two main CPUs were on the same bus, it was incredibly difficult to program for. Oh, yeah, of course. But if you were able to program for it, holy shit, was it powerful. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. They also made a mistake. The Jaguar, the PlayStation, and the N64 all programmed in the same uh, geometric shape. Do you know what that is? What it was, I should say? I don't. It was triangles. It's pretty common. Okay. The Saturn, they use quadrilaterals. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, they did. Why not? So because of that, porting was incredibly difficult because you couldn't just take your basic engine. You had to create a bespoke from scratch engine in order to run on the Saturn. However, arcade ports were incredible. And it should come as no surprise that some of the best-selling Saturn games were pretty much pixel-perfect arcade ports. Yeah, uh, I don't know a single game from the Saturn era. 
Go, well, I got a list. <laughs> of course, and one you've probably played, even though you probably don't remember until I say it, Daytona USA. Daytona! Oh, my you know, God. Everybody remembers it. Uh, that was basically arcade quality. I have it upstairs. You put it on a big TV. It still looks great. Reminds you of, you know, going to the mall on a Saturday. Uh, Sega Rally, another great racing game. Another great arcade port. Rampage, the original Rampage. We're not even doing a world tour yet. The OG Rampage. That I remember. I started dating a girl in college. Our first date was we went to my dorm and we played Rampage. She loved it. She thought it was great. Got a couple more dates out of it. So there's that. It was on the Saturn. So go Saturn, go. Yes. Uh, Road Rash, the original Road Rash. Uh, I'm trying to think of another one. And then you had some first-party titles. You had Nights into Dreams, which was the uh, pack-in game in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic game. was made by Sonic Team. Basically led to the breakup of Sonic Team because it had uh, a bespoke engine, again, because it ran on the Saturn, and they tried to use it for the uh, canned Sonic Extreme which was going to be the killer app for the Saturn. It was going to be the the true 3D Sonic game. And the gentleman who created the engine no doubt would have allowed them to use it if they had asked first. Oh, God. But they didn't. And so he sued them, as he should. And that sort of, it not only did it kill the app and then eventually the system, it led to the breakup of Sonic Team as we know it. Which was if sad. only they had asked, we could have still been getting quality Sonic games. Yeah, pretty pretty much actually. Uh, so you have that. There's liter- literal books have been written about the whole saga of Sonic Extreme. Uh, a man was sleeping in his cubicle writing uh, boss programming, and he actually had a nervous breakdown and was borderline suicidal because he didn't go home for weeks at a time. Oh god, it's just it's it's wild. I could do a whole episode on Sonic Extreme. Uh, so you had that, and just to put it into perspective, it, it was a miserable failure aside from, you know, arcade heads like me, but of course arcades at this time were dying. They didn't last much longer. I mean, by the time you and I were in high school, arcades were dead. <sighs> so, um, you know, you had great arcade ports. Nobody gave a shit. Uh, I'm sure you're going to mention it later, but I'm going to jump on you a little bit here. The number one selling game on the N64, of course, was... Oh, Mario 64. Correct. And do you know how much it sold? How many copies it sold? I don't. 11.62 million. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you know what the number one selling game on the Saturn was? I do not. Virtual Fighter 2, which I own. Great game. Yeah. Do you know how many it sold? Four. 1.71 million. 10% of the install base. Yeah. It's so good. So, I mean, that tells you really everything you need to know. You know, it had four and a half megs of RAM. It had all these bespoke, custom-made Yamaha chips. It didn't do a damn thing. No. (laughs) Um, But I love it. I still play it to this day. Um, You know, if if you ever have a chance, if you find one at a yard sale or in a pawn shop, they're pretty much worthless, so you can get them cheap. And they're a lot of fun, man. Definitely pick one up if you have a chance. That's fair. Which brings us to the N64. So uh, N64, fairly late in this console war as is. The Saturn was dead by the time the 64 came out, to put that into perspective. Uh, So the N64, uh, Nintendo 64, the the Nintendo 64-bit game system, uh, began in 93 uh, as a collaboration between Nintendo and Silicon Graphics, Inc., SGI. 
And uh, the two of them uh, kind of announced quietly this, uh, th- this joint effort called Project Reality. And uh, it, it was being kept under wraps. I mean, the, the industry knew that there was a new Nintendo console coming and that the SNES had, uh, you know, was on its last legs. But it was really, I, I mean, what they did with the N64 was, you know, would end up defining a lot of what uh, Nintendo would be in the future and what the console wars would look like uh, down the line. Um but Nintendo, I mean, Nintendo's not generally forthcoming, right? Like, you don't say. They just tend to drop shit, and then it's like, oh my god, there's this cool thing. Uh, the N64's development was kept so secret that in the offices where they were developing the console, the controller itself, uh, the developers testing the controllers, uh, had to put their hands into a box to use the controller for testing. It was that secret. Like, they, that's not, that's nobody else around could see it. There, there was a, a Japanese joke I didn't really understand, something about uh, how they were putting their hands into, uh, like, an intelligent bowl of jelly that was sensing their thoughts. And it, it was supposed to be, like, in language. It was really funny, and I was like, I don't get it, but okay. I mean, that's the way we handle um, the rods in a nuclear plant. Yeah. You oh, put yeah. on lead gloves and stick your hand in a box and just kind of vaguely feel around. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the N64 was really secret, and it took three years to develop. Uh, it was officially released in Japan in June of 96. Uh, and this was where we got that. I, it was supposed to be April, but they delayed it a few months, literally because the Saturn couldn't m- meet retailer demand. Yep. Uh, so for anybody who, uh, if you're listening to this and you're trying to find a PS5 and you're getting really frustrated with the industry, dude, this shit was happening 20 plus years, years ago. ago. Yeah. So uh, like the, the industry has not changed. For some reason, video game developers have never figured out how to meet retailer demand right off the bat. I mean, we're what? three, four months after the PS5's release, and Mark and I are still looking like maybe summer? Yeah, I mean, and don't let them, don't buy into this whole bullshit about a chip shortage. I mean, they've said that. I remember the GameCube, there was a chip shortage. Yeah. I mean, I had a GameCube day one. I was lucky. But I remember, oh, you can't get a GameCube chip shortage. Oh, you can't get a Wii chip shortage. Yeah. Oh, you can't get a PS5 chip. No, they just don't, they don't make enough. Um you know, and it, it is it is what it is. I mean, you know, before the Saturn and then after the Saturn with the Dreamcast, Sega was a little bit better about it. Sony used to be a bit better about it, but overall the industry just doesn't give a fuck. No, it's usually a solid year after release before a, a console these days is readily available at retailers uh, and has kind of reached saturation in the market. Um, so June 96 in Japan... Uh, September 26th, 96, it hit America. Um, so the Saturn was $400, you had said? Yep, $399.99. Yep. Uh, the N64 undercut both the PS1 and the Saturn and entered the American market at $199.99. I remember that. Uh, and the N64 got released in the United States uh, with a $54 million ad campaign in the U.S., which 
basically equated to a hundred dollars uh, of ad a rev- hundred dollars of ad spend on each console that got sold in that like first year. It was just oh, insane. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually have a thing here in my notes that I forgot to mention. Do you know where they spent a bulk of that? No, I don't. Okay, because the Saturn had a roughly $30 million ad campaign, but they decided they wanted to go after a quote-unquote more mature, more adult Oh, I do know that. Yes, I do know this. Because, so, do you know the three main magazines they took print ads out in? I don't. Wired, which, okay, that kind of makes sense. okay. High Times. No. And Playboy. Woof. Because, you know, if you're reading a Playboy, you really want to look at an ad for a Sega Saturn. Yeah. Whereas, I, and one of the most interesting things about this console war is I feel like this was the the generation that Nintendo really set some precedents, right? Uh, with the N64 uh, and around this time where, like, Game Boy Pocket, Game Boy Color generations, um, Nintendo knew exactly who its audience was. They were advertising to preteens. They were, t- uh, I mean, Nintendo Power did huge uh, ad campaigns for the N64 uh, you got you saw stuff. I think Game Informer was around back then, and yep. and there was there was a bunch of stuff in Game Informer, but it was television ads. Um, I remember vividly the commercial. You know, you mentioned the one ninety nine, and it struck. Do you remember the commercial with the kid? And he wasn't much older than us. He had to be fifteen, sixteen. You know, just got his working papers, and he was working at a McDonald's or a Burger King type thing. And the manager comes over and hands him his first check, and he's going on a speech about responsibility and you know oh you're a man now and you're in the workplace and he opens the check and it's for one ninety nine ninety nine and he goes oh i quit and he goes goes to the store and he buys an n64 yeah i still to this day remember that commercial yeah i and nintendo always had really great ad campaigns back in the day do you remember play it loud yes play it loud yeah. was one of my favorite ad cam- it just fed into like the 90s skater punk extreme culture get in or get out mm-hmm so, uh, do you know what the two games that the N64 launched with were was in the U.S., and what was the, the game that we thought we were going to get right away and was delayed? Oh, God. Um, one of them was really, like, shit, wasn't it? Uh, so, there were two that launched with it. Right. So, one was Pilot Wing 64... Okay, that wasn't what I was thinking of. The other was Super Mario 64. Okay, I, I don't know why I thought Cruising USA was a launch there title. Was meant, Cruising USA was meant to be a launch title, and it got delayed because Nintendo was like, mm, this isn't meeting quality. No, it was hot garbage. I still have it upstairs for the N64. Don't, it's awful. Yeah, it's bad. It's, don't, don't worry about it. And then uh, for our Euro- European friends, the, the PAL region uh, got the N64... About six months after we got it in the States, so March 1st, 97. Um, And, uh, I mean, huge ad campaign, like $54 million ad campaign, right? And that ad campaign, uh, I I remember them doing a lot of crossover stuff. And in 99, to kind of combat low sale numbers after the Christmas holiday, uh, do you know what company they paired with um, to do another ad push? 
This is like two and a half years after, uh, two years and and a, f- and a couple of months after it got released. In was the it US. McDonald's? No, it was General Mills. And uh, oh, they did a huge. I remember this. Yeah, a fruit. It, it was in Fruit by the Foot. Yeah. And as you unrolled the fruit snack, uh, you could call in to this uh, this phone number and get. There were like a bunch of games, and there were three tips per game on how to get through the game. Uh, so uh, all good things, of course. Uh, yeah, the, but the gimmick with those, if I remember right, because I remember that now that you said it, but after you got the three tips, if you didn't hang up immediately, they began charging you. Because mm-hmm. this was back when every company had their own tip line. You could call up and, you know, Nintendo actually started this with the Super Nintendo. There would be people that would play a game. And you would call up and, at the, uh, you know, way back in the early 90s, you would get someone playing the game. And they would say, oh, this is how you beat this level. And they were, like, obscene. They were, like, two ninety nine a minute back then. Mm-hmm. And I seem to recall that the Fruit by the Foot thing, after you got your three, uh, your three tips, they gave you a brief window to hang up. And if you stayed on the line, they began charging you like normal for the tip line. And I may or may not have racked up a bit of a phone bill <laughs> and may or may not have gotten in trouble. We all got in trouble for big phone bills back then. Um, but the N64 had, I, I think, easily the most unique, the most iconic controller design. And I uh, like it. I know it gets a lot of shit. I like it. I liked it. I thought it was great. Uh, so if you haven't seen the N64 controller design, go out and check it out. It's the classic M shape of the N64. So it's got like one middle handle um, that has the, the iconic joystick and the Z trigger on the back, which would eventually become uh, the nunchuck peripheral for the Wii. And then on either side of that middle tongue, there were two smaller handles and one had like the C button and the A and the B. There were bumpers on, on the top. It, it was a busy controller. But generally, I'd say for like 90% of games, you would be holding the joystick with the Z trigger in your left hand and the right smaller handle with all of the main buttons in your right hand. It was very much a, you know, a, a, a right-handed controller. I think I had one game, and I don't remember what it was, that you you held the D-pad instead, so you didn't touch the middle prong. I, I had four. All of the THQ AKI wrestling games, which are still so fondly remembered and so fondly modded today, uh, WCW World Tour, WCW Revenge, uh, WrestleMania 2000, and then WWF No Mercy, all four of those you had to use the D-pad. Nice. Uh, so, the, but those were the only. Yeah, I mean, you can literally count on one hand how many games there were and have fingers left over. It's so good. Uh, and the N sixty four eventually got color variants, which is something that Nintendo was doing a lot of starting in the nineties, right? Like Super Nintendo didn't have many color variants at all. I think there was two versions that we got in the states. Um, but the N sixty four, you know, you got your traditional like dark gray console, light gray controllers. And then they eventually jumped on the 90s train of everything had to be see-through. Yep. So uh, my N64 that I still have is uh, 
see-through green, and I have see-through green controllers. <laughs> I have the see-through purple controller. My, I had the original base, dark gray, black, whatever, 64, but I had the atomic purple controller when that came out. Nice. Um, but this was the this was the first real 3D uh, 3D war that you know um, I I like to affectionately call this generation the polygon generation and I don't oh generally go back I go back and play the cube all the time I don't generally go back and play the 64 it, it polygons are rough man um, that being said. They, there are a few games for the 64 and for the, the Saturn, you know, while we're talking about this generation, that are absolutely timeless. And oh, I there can, are. I can sit down and play to this day. I mean, you know, on the Saturn, you know, we had already talked about Rampage. That was fantastic. Any one of the Panzer Dragoons, fantastic games. Mm-hmm. Very long, very, a lot of reading, a lot of text, because there's no voice yet. Um, but they're all fantastic. You know, the N64, any one of those wrestling games that I mentioned, Goldeneye. Goldeneye is better than any FPS today. Fight me. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. So speaking, speaking of the games, uh, I, I've got the top 10 best-selling games for the N64 listed here. And then I've got Ooh, right. th- three extras that are my, my personal favorite games that didn't make it. Um, so, Mark, do you know what the two third-party games for the N64 uh, that ended up in the top ten. Were well, we consider counting rare as third party? We are. So Goldeneye. Yep. Uh, Banjo Kazooie. Yep. Those are the two. Okay. <laughs> so the others uh, were Mario sixty four, of course. Of course. Uh, Mario Kart sixty four, of course. Of course. Uh, Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. Of course. The original Super Smash Brothers. Yeah, uh, right. this one surprised me. Pokemon Stadium, and no, don't get me wrong, I love Stadium. I love. I mean, I'm. We'll talk about Pokemon. Uh, Pokemon Stadium. I was surprised it made it into the top ten. Um, now, see, if you had said Snap, I would have been confused. Yeah, no, Snap's not in the top ten. Uh, Donkey Kong sixty four. Great fucking game. One of the best games ever made has somehow yet to be paralleled. Yeah, and weirdly enough, that's a game that I've noticed that seems people have sort of turned off it with age, and I will never understand why. I never will. It's fantastic. No. Uh, Diddy Kong Racing. Okay. And Star Fox 64. (laughs) Two parallel. Yeah. Um, So those are all great games. I think I had all of these. I never owned my own copy of uh, GoldenEye. Because uh, I always had friends that would come over and, and have it with them. So I've played hours and hours and hours of Goldeneye. I just don't think I ever owned it myself. But my three favorite games of this console war were Majora's Mask, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. It's probably, depending on the day, it's, it's usually in my first slot as my favorite Zelda game of all times. Um, Paper Mario, the original Paper Mario is on N64, which I feel like I always forget. Yeah, I do too, actually. Yeah, I, for some reason, I always give Paper Mario to the queue, but it was on the 64, 
And then the last one was Jet Force Gemini. You ever play this fool? Oh, I, I played Jet Force Gemini, and my, my friend Kyle, I never owned it. My friend Kyle had it. He loaned it to me quite a bit. I remember he went and bought the official Prima strategy guide, which was a thing back then. Kids yeah. these days listen and don't know what to talk about. That fucking game, I liked it for what it was, but it was way too long. It was way too deep. It, it, it did a lot of things well, but it was a bit too ambitious in my opinion. Oh, it was. But it's also a sleeper in, in a generation where there weren't a lot of shooters that were True. super good. There were only like two James Bond games in the top 40. Uh, and I think those were the only other shooters in the whole thing. I think Jet Force Gemini is somewhere in like the 20s of the top 40. Um, so I, I'll, I'll leave you with the one, like the most fun I ever had playing the N64 was Donkey Kong 64. I had beaten the game seven ways from Sunday. And this was the era where the game industry as a whole had not really figured out how to code in 3D space. So uh, you'd have really well-polished games like Mario 64, DK 64, and then you'd just get utter shit like Superman 64, where you could just fly through walls if you blinked. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And the... Even with these really polished games like DK64, Mario Mario 64, Mario Kart, uh, there were always ways of like just fucking up your game horribly. And I remember playing DK64 so much. I'd gotten all the bananas. I had rescued everybody. I had done all of the things. And I downloaded a and printed off meticulously on a dot matrix printer a 10-page long guide on how to... Uh, all of the various ways that you could clip through uh, the levels in DK64 in interesting ways. And the most interesting thing I found was that uh, if you're out in the main area of DK Island and you're looking up at his face, there's a way to play as Chunky Kong and you make him big with his like barrel move. And there's a particular way that if you jump at DK's head on the island in a certain way, you would go through it and you would find that uh, inside DK's head is King K. Rule's throne room from all of the cut scenes. Yes, I remember this now that you mentioned that. Yeah, because this was how they were coding in 3D space, right? Like, the the giant gator mech that would show up halfway through the game was not big enough to house this big room where a bunch of cut scenes happened. So they the only place they could put it was inside Donkey Kong's head, and you could get into it and run around. And this was the shit that we would do back in the day. You know, there, there weren't a million video games and there wasn't online play, so we would have a lot of fun with our games and we'd figure out how to break them. One of the best ways, and I know we're running a bit long, um, was, and I, the 64 was, I think, the last system that it came out for, and it was certainly the last one that I had it for. I had a Game Shark. Oh my God, I love Game Shark. My last one was SNES. 
and you know on paper it was oh you could put cheat codes in and you can get infinite lives or you could you know have god mode or you could do this and this well you know this was all 96 97 98 i was starting to get you know not smart smart but realizing how things worked how this and that the internet was in its infancy you know we had AOL 3.5 or whatever the hell it was with our 15k modems and you could go online and you could get codes that would just do really random things and then once you reach a certain level you discovered you could write your own codes because they were just numbers in the game shark and, you know, you could change a six to a seven and it might, you know, one of them I found on GoldenEye, it made all the guns tie-dye. <laughs> didn't, do, didn't do anything else, just made all the guns tie-dye. Or, you know, or you'd change like a nine to an eight. Oh, well, that just bricked the game. Okay, whoops. Got to go back, you know, do the, and that was a lot of fun. It was. Um, and I really, really regret giving my cousin my game shark. Because <laughs> they are fucking expensive now. <laughs> Let me tell you. But it is what it is, uh, you know, and so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you just didn't know that thing. Interestingly enough, that carried over a little bit into the next generation. Uh, even later on, for those of you that are fans of uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, or no, is it San Andreas or is it Vice City? It's Vice knows? City. I think it's, no, I think it's Vice City. You go back to uh, Liberty City in one point. And someone who was a genius actually figured out that the section of Liberty City that they use for the cutscene and for the mission, it's just an assassination mission, is actually floating above the main map. So if you used a plane or whatever and got high enough, you could land in Liberty City. It was there the whole time. Nice. Because again, like you said, they just didn't know what they were doing. That's the thing. Games today are almost too good. Like, we're spoiled. We are. You know, it, you look yeah. at it, 11 million copies of Super Mario uh, 64. How many did Cyberpunk just sell? 35 million? Yeah, something it's like insane. That? It's just, it's, it's unreal. It's, it's mainstream now. What the hell? It, it, the, you just reminded me that uh, when the Switch just came out, what, like two, three years ago, uh, I remember there reading a bunch of threads on Reddit that um, people were joking that because Nintendo had gone back to cartridges, there might be a chance to get a game genie for the Switch. Yes! <laughs> that would have been cool. Well, is that they, it? Their, or, their, is their, their the, advertising campaign was good, too. The, the kid with, the, with the, you know, the, the lightning coming out of his hands. So now, good. Now I'm nostalgic. Yeah, my glass is empty. I think we're done. <laughs> I, I, I need more Elijah Craig. Well, uh Fans, thank you so much for coming and listening to our overly long episode this week as we wax nostalgic over some of our favorite video game consoles. Um, clearly, the N64 won this round because we're not going to acknowledge the PlayStation 1 at this time. Uh, so Only PlayStation I don't own. Yeah, yeah. Because I'll have a 5 once they build more of them. Yeah, I, I've never owned a PS1. But uh, again, thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to uh, like the show and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, if you want to throw a, a review up there, I think we're up to three five-star reviews. So Three uh, five-star reviews. So thank you all. We, we're solidly at five stars. We have a perfect rating on iTunes. Yeah, nobody seems to hate us yet, so that's good. Yeah, um, give it time. Uh, and if you want to engage with us more, recommend some whiskeys, recommend a topic, ask us what we think about something, or or just in general rail against uh, 
you know, reality with us. Uh, we are uh, on our website. Uh, we're at thewittenwhiskeycast.com. We've got an email address at thewittenwhiskeycast at gmail.com. Uh, we're up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, got some stuff on Podbean. Uh, we're up on Listener Notes, Listen Notes. Listen notes because of because of hoodoo. Um, yeah, you know they're they're up there and they have all of our they have our Instagram, they have our Facebook, they have our email. Uh, you can actually subscribe to uh, what is it an RSS feed of ours. So every time DJ does his posting hoodoo, you will be notified. Um, and so big shout out to the listen notes people. Um, I I don't know how they did it, but thank you. Yes, yeah, we definitely uh, appreciate anybody taking a look out there. And uh, I, I think we get some new blog posts coming up soon. Um, yes, I, I, I actually have written the one on the Mandarin Madness. I need to take a few more pictures before I post it, but it is actually done. This one is for real. Nice. I'm excited. Uh, we do release uh, right here, wherever you're listening, every Friday morning. Um, we generally wait a little bit to do our social media posts just in case some of the podcatchers need to catch up. But uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, there we are. Um, our next episode, uh, we aren't going oh boy, to... Oh boy, 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 oh boy. I'm not going to be reading free and letting Mark choose this time because uh, next week we are going to have our first guest on the show, Nuno Henry Silva, the, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, is going to come in and he's going to tell us all about... Uh, his, his writing process, and we're going to uh, plug some, some of his works and, and uh, just generally pick his brain on what it is to be a creative in, in different spaces than our own. Uh, so, of course, we want to thank Nuno Henry Silver for the use of our intro and outro music. Uh, we're going to send fans to his SoundCloud, and if you enjoy that music, uh, make sure you tune in next week when he tells us all about it and um, you know, generally gives us some interesting things to think about. Uh, so, I can't heard, wait. I can't wait either. You've heard of the legend of the quote-unquote fifth Beatle. He is the third member of the W&W. He is. He is. The, mean, the, he doesn't know it yet, yeah, but he, he is. He, he's the ghost, and uh, that's okay. Everybody needs a good ghost. Uh, but next week, he's going to be here in the, I can't, I guess I can't say the flesh, but he'll be in your ears. He'll be talking to you. And um, so I would encourage anybody who's... Uh, who's curious about uh, hearing what Nuno has to say. If you've got any questions you want us to ask him, uh, feel free to hit us up. Uh, we are also on Instagram and Facebook at the Wit and Whiskey cast. Uh, there is no H in wit and an E in whiskey. I think I got it right the first time that, that well, one. Yeah, you're so. not me. You can pull <laughs> it off. I can't. Uh, so, yeah, uh, look forward to uh, Nuno next week as we are. And until then, cheers. Salud. Bye, goddamn Saturday.